0: Hey you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker, Litbreaker is an online advertising network for book people. It's a way to get your message out to book people on the internet. Do you want to get your message out to book people on the internet, bookish people, literary people, people who like books? Go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Paris Review, Electric Literature, the list goes on. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my god
1: you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common
0: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've
1: done i think it's really beautiful jake stated what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there and now here's your host brad listing
0: just one person at just one time. All right, here we go again. This <laughs> right. is this, this is Other People. This is the Other People podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in. It's good to be with you. I have a bit of a cold. I don't know if you can hear it. I'm a little bit under the weather. What's interesting is that, you know, just the other day, uh, we had a plumber here. Uh, it's like a long story, but basically there was a gas leak. We had to turn off the gas. We had to have a plumber come to test the lines before the gas company would turn the heat back on. It's this whole big uh, ordeal that lasted three days, which happened to be like the coldest days of the year in Los Angeles. So our house was freezing. Uh, The plumbers couldn't find the leak, and then they could find the leak, and then they couldn't find the leak, and the gas company kept coming and then going. And then, you know, it it was a saga that unfolded over three days, during which time our our house was like something like a refrigerator, at least at night and in the early morning. And uh, at one point, the plumber or one of the plumbers, we had multiple plumbers here, but one of the plumbers was uh, with me. And we were standing in the bathroom together <laughs> uh, because he was analyzing the plumbing uh, in the bath. This isn't going well. But you know what I'm saying? Like we were standing there talking and uh, I said to him, yeah, it's really cold in here. I hope I don't get sick, you know, but I haven't gotten sick in a while. It's been a long time. And then I said to him, I said, I shouldn't have said that. And then I, I, you know, I don't even know if I knocked on wood, but I was like, I just jinxed myself. And sure enough, not, not like 24 hours later, uh, I had a cold, which you can now hear, I think. So I'm hopped up on cold meds. I'm a believer in cold meds. When, when you're the most symptomatic, just take the fucking cold meds. Alleviate the symptoms a little bit. You know, I mean, I'm all for the natural approaches, but don't eat a bunch of garlic when you're miserable. Put some ephedrine in your body. So, uh, the, the, we have heat again, that's good. The gas is back on, but we still have some plumbing issues in terms of, uh, some knocking pipes. There's a, a pipe knock. If I can use that term that we're trying to address, it's, it's a kind of a, a mystery. You know, you have to figure out how it's happening so that the plumber can fix it. So I had a plumber out here today, a very nice, uh, guy. And he comes in, and he's got to go up into the attic. Like our hot water heater is in our attic, which is sort of a random arrangement, but that's how uh, the house was built. And so we go up there with a ladder, and I notice that this guy's in a flop sweat. And uh, he confesses to me that he's terribly scared of heights. And it's really not, I mean, it's not even that high up. I mean, you're, you're just climbing up a ladder into an attic. But it was on the second floor, so he could see down, I guess guy was a mess. I almost wanted to just send him home. I mean, I felt like he was almost in tears. You know, it's like, uh, I don't think I have any uh, fears like that. Trying to think if I have a phobia that matches that. I don't have that. I don't think. But I know what it feels like to be so scared, like you're just so uncomfortable, you're almost about to cry. (laughs) Uh, That's how he was. He was almost in tears. But he, he made it. He got up there. I kept checking on him. I held the ladder for him when he came down. I didn't want him to panic and fall, you know. I also thought, uh, you know, you get into these scenarios in your head. I was thinking, like, what if he has a heart attack while he's up there? And I actually ran through this in my head. I imagined myself climbing up the ladder, you know, like, you know, sort of scrambling across the beams to get to him at the far end of the attic giving him a, you know CPR calling the paramedics he dies and then it's like oh how do you get his body out of there to feed the body out of the attic i had that whole train of thought going just getting ahead of myself so happy holidays uh, i hope you guys are enjoying the how's that for a segue um yeah I'm just there are a lot of cold meds maybe not the greatest amount of sleep waking up in the middle of the night what I don't like is that the nighttime mucinex that I've been taking only lasts for four hours that's not good enough I need like give me a solid like eight at least I don't want to have to get up in the middle of the night and take more I don't want it to wear off you know Apparently my wife said that last night, uh, we were talking in bed and I basically just passed out right in front of her, which is very much not like me. I was like mid conversation and all of a sudden I was just out, which I attribute to the cold meds. I attribute this entire monologue to the cold meds. I hope you're reaping the benefits of, uh, my medicine intake. All right. All <clears> right. <throat> Let's see. Yeah, I get nothing. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now wherever you buy books. All right, shall we get shall we get to the show? Shall we get to the interview? Shall we uh move this thing along? Adam Soldovsky is my guest. He's a poet, uh, and he's got a new collection out called Memory Foam, available now from Disorder Press. I'm holding it in my hands right now. Listen to me flip the pages. What do you think of that? It's called Memory Foam. It's by Adam Soldovsky. I had a very nice time talking with Adam. Uh, He was over here uh, about a month ago, I think. I I, want to say we recorded this the day before the election, back when the world was still, there was still like a ray of sunlight in the world (laughs) before we turned to the dark times. Uh so here we go. Let's get to the conversation. This is Adam Soldovsky and his new poetry collection is called Memory Foam.
1: I just don't think that the nerve rage would be any different from some <laughs> bro rage and some right. bro That's rising right. to the top of some other industry. That's right. Feeling uh But
0: Steve Jobs is kind of that though. Whereas it? I mean well, he was sort of like I don't know, maybe he was good socially, but um there's a lot of dysfunction. I guess it's all the same shit.
1: You know? I don't like the idolatry of jobs or any of these guys at all. It's just, it's too weird to me because it's like back to what I was saying. I feel like we forgot that these were mega, uh, multinational corporations with tremendous, uh, uh, levels of sort of influence on global economies and enormous, uh, uh, extractors of raw materials from everywhere. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So just because this guy is charismatic and a genius, you know, we should be able to, to have, the, hold the two together in our minds as consumers and to understand that we're, you know, we, that we, we appreciate it. And we're also guilty in some sense, but because we are,
0: because they're like twelve-year-olds making our iPhones in China or whatever. Whatever
1: rare earth extraction is taking <laughs> place for, for us to be able to refresh five thirty-eight, you know. Yeah. Um, I think we we just shouldn't get too comfortable, uh, uh, or we sh- we shouldn't, uh, on balance, always think about the the charisma of, of these geniuses or the uh, radical new benefits.
0: So, what was it like for you? Because clearly. As a, as a child raised in Silicon Valley, uh, it, it's had quite a grip on you. you. You left, moved to Los Angeles, and are a poet.
1: Well, so before that, I went to New York City, you know, for 10 years, too. But um, uh, the thing about uh, being raised in Silicon Valley, it's probably not so different than being raised in Los Angeles, where the industry is the entertainment industry. And there's a, a tremendous amount of mystery and and focus from the rest of the world directed at where you live, but you aren't participating. Yeah. And so, you know, we, I would have friends whose parents maybe, or somebody worked, you know, in those industries. And before it was uh computer industries, it was aerospace there. So that was a, uh, the beginnings of that. Probably there's aerospace here too. Right. 10 years before semiconductors, you know, it was aerospace, but that precede that predates me. But anyway, Somebody's family worked for you know you know Hewlett Packard or somebody, uh, or somebody had a job as routine as assembly, you know, putting together computers. Uh, those people do not; uh, they don't come into contact with the you know the charismatic genius, and they none of the shine from the from the new technology really rubs off on them. They're essentially just like any other working person. And the other thing about uh, the corollaries between this area and that is that the, a lot of the economy is just has nothing to do with it. Um, and there's a lot of uh, new Americans trying to operate in those, you know, unlooked at places. And that was pretty much what I grew up with. So, no, you know, people were talking about the Internet, but probably no different than people were talking about the Internet anywhere else in the country because we just didn't have anything to do with it as far as developing it
0: okay so when would it like your family situation your parents didn't work in technology no
1: my father is a uh, he actually is a, a poet himself and he directs an mfa program now at san jose state he wasn't at that point he was he was uh he was a professor and you know in the csu system you know trying to to hang on basically you know uh, and my mother was an eligibility worker and then a uh a, uh, a, manager for a benefits office out of Santa Clara County. So, I mean, you could be those two things in any city or, you know, uh, any university town in this country. So again, and you
0: just happen to be in Silicon Valley,
1: right? So the thing about Silicon Valley, um, maybe for me more so than what theoretically was happening there, you know, the exciting things that were happening there, uh, is, uh, it's a, a strange admixture of this technology, uh, the propaganda of it being pumped at you, and of course the rest of the world too. But also a sort of uh, a nostalgia for an old California, because this was an agrarian place. Supposedly, it was a beautiful place uh, before we, you know, before it really turned into what it is. Oh my God, California is like Eden, or was like Eden. Well, that's what constantly got. Invoked all the time. If you read about you know that area particularly, it's just always described in those sort of idyllic, paradisal terms, right? What you see, even when I was a kid, and and even more so now when I go back, is a sort of ghosts of that place hanging around the strangest places, strangest uh, locales. For example. Uh, in in its heyday it was a town of orchards you know and it was all all different kinds of of fruits and vegetables just growing right of course that's not the case now but uh, a lot of the branding is stayed so that you'll have an apartment complex called orchard valley or cherry cherry this or apricot grove or something like that there won't. There wouldn't have been apricots in that, you know, part of the city for a hundred years or something like. But that. now
0: this like prefab condominium complex, <laughs> right? You know.
1: So it's it's really still trading off of the the, the mystique of that old place and trying to uh, trying to borrow some of the innocence of it, uh, but it, it, it just is not there at all, except for some of the some of the landscape you just. You you cannot deny the beauty of it. Some of the valleys driving through, it's wonderful. But contraposed to the most banal track, housing, and, and mall developments, etc. So for me, that was always sort of at the level of consciousness, even if I couldn't articulate it. When I was, you know, a young person, but
0: it was encroaching on you as you were being, as you were uh, growing up. I mean, it was it was probably more idyllic when you were young than it is now, right? It's it's obviously been developed quite a
1: bit. Maybe so, but um, I have to I have to be honest. Like, I wasn't interested in you know that kind of beauty. You know, at, when I was growing up, I was interested in like trying to find a place, kind of a cultural place for myself. There and it didn't have anything to do with <laughs> natural landscape at all, or or, or uh, uh, the history of that region. Yeah. It had more to do with how do I um, how do I uh, find the right sort of people, the you know the the most uh, attractive sort of subculture to join, you know, and that was really what <laughs> carried my focus as a young person. Did you, what did you find? Well, the thing about uh, uh, California in general, uh, and in that area particularly, is just the amount of diversity. We're just lucky to have it as a kid, you know. Even if that means, uh, like being like uh, a white boy everywhere you go, you know. Uh, for me, it it had tremendous benefits. So, like what? Well, for example, um, we moved from Oakland, right? I was five uh the first day you know we got there we pulled up at this house right which is probably now worth a fortune and there's nothing to it either right um and this kid is is you know riding his scooter up and down the street and uh he rolls up in the in the driveway and he's like oh you're moving in uh I'm right down the street you know come on down right and that day or some other day I go over there, and there's this music on, and there's these other kids, these older kids, and they're all dancing and and this is all like nothing you've ever seen before people are spinning on their heads and doing you know break break the, dancing, yeah, and you're like, oh, okay, like this is obviously the best thing to to try to get into, so let me do that, and it was like that, you know uh how can how can Sherry orchards compete with you know right break dancing it can't not at that point and yeah. so, and so that was there you know so while uh while other people grown ups were you know perfecting some sort of uh uh hardware or and our friend's parents were working in some corollary industry. We were trying to you know
0: do the caterpillar
1: or uh, yeah or or just anything right anything that was like somebody else thought was cool or you had you know saw some kid doing in the parking lot of a mall or something like that. well,
0: it's interesting too that your dad's a poet, and that you turned out to be a poet uh, I know this happens this happens in families all the time, but I don't often hear of it happening like poet to poet it's a i don't know if I've ever talked to anybody that's been in that situation. Mm-hmm. he must have been. Uh, a big influence on you?
1: Well, how could he not? Yeah. yeah. The, the, it would be, it would be completely ridiculous to sort of deny that it didn't have anything to do with a sort of, uh, uh, uh pleasing him in some way. Right. Yeah. Even if it comes after a long period of like, you know, rebellion, but,
0: was there a long period sure, of rebellion like sure. aesthetic rebellion or just like the oh, whole no. thing
1: oh no i mean uh, well one could argue that a, a rebellion with their parents is always an aesthetic rebellion <laughs> but not about poetry until you know until i was 18 years old when i really probably had the confidence to tell them i was doing it um but uh uh the it it yeah it's clear that it has something to do with approval but um that was the last thing I thought I would do, you know? So here we are doing it now and it's great that, that he and I both do it. But, uh, at the time, uh, it was sort of, uh, uh, a surprise and almost like a sort of <laughs> an embarrassment, you know, that I wanted to do it too. Yeah.
0: Um, but the, I mean, you know, what is it? DNA? Like, what, what was it? Like, can you trace your interest in it back to a certain, uh, text or an event, or is it just some natural inclination no
1: well, I think it, no it's untraceable to an individual event uh, and and I should put a word in for my mom here <laughs> you know yeah. she she's been a reader too, you know, and she uh since she my parents are from the midwest where from Iowa oh, okay, and my dad is from I, I mean he's not born in Iowa he was born in Arkansas, but they they were raised in Iowa, my father in Iowa City, and my mother in uh burlington iowa which is much smaller uh you know my dad knew he wanted to write my mom didn't know what she wanted to do but she did want to read books when she was a young person and she would tell me about how they would you know a certain teacher would suggest a book something that it was a scandal to be reading at the time maybe Kerouac or something and she would get on a bus and go get it you know uh so I have to, I, you know, it's very easy to point to my dad, but it's there in both of them, they, they both are.
0: You were doomed from the start.
1: Right. I, <laughs> I have to thank them, you know, in, in the most sarcastic way for this life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what about siblings? You got any siblings? Yeah.
1: I have a younger brother and he is, you know, if he were sitting here, he'd have, you know, more intelligent things to say than me. And, and he's a, he wouldn't confess this, you know, but he's a fantastic writer, but oh, yeah. Um,
0: uh, is he doing it or is he like, he's kind of like, you know,
1: well, I don't want to put him on the on blast too hard, but, um, you know, if he wanted to, I think he could do it. Um, maybe he'll, maybe he'll want to with more, you know, enthusiasm at some point and he'll write something, Yeah, you know? but he's, you know, four years younger than me. So some time for him. Yeah. He's got time. Right. And, uh, but, uh, as far as what, why you end up doing the thing your dad does. I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with po- it being poetry, and, and more to do with whatever is sort of reverberating in the house you grow up in. If your father is, um, you know,
0: was uh, your dad like reading his stuff to you, or like reading other people's stuff? Well, or?
1: what you what you have is a house full of books and records. Um, my dad is working a job where famous poets—I mean, who's a famous poet to a to a 13-year-old? You know. I, but that doesn't influence you, actually, I don't think. There's an idea, like someone will make a suggestion to you, hey, this person is you know, a big deal. Uh, and the fact that they're a big deal makes you want their attention, but you don't know anything about them as a kid. So I don't think that really makes a difference. I think it just has to do with walking into your house, seeing books everywhere.
0: Just having it be in the ether.
1: Yeah, having somebody, for better or for worse, privilege this thing really uh uh devote his life to it in front of you yeah. to make it seem like it's worthy of, of something like that even if even if uh even if it's a frustration for you so that was happening in my house and so uh i suppose that you can trace any sort of uh development from me it just to the atmosphere
0: there's worse legacies you know, I mean, like in terms of like a trade to pass on or like a, a way of life or a way of dealing with life. I think like a, passing on a literary legacy is a noble thing to do.
1: Well, you know, I, I don't think he had, an, at least when I was a teenager, I no any hope of doing that. <laughs> but uh, in the uh, not to not to tell his business either. But my father's father was an economist who would have preferred that my dad do something more practical. Well, sure. Uh, who also. As a younger person, my grandfather wrote his poems, you know, and took it, you know, loved certain poets that my father would have found really detestable, like (laughs) Tennyson or somebody. (laughs) And uh, to the point where he actually, whether he had some sort of subterranean communication to my dad to do this thing or not, when he passed away. So your
0: grandfather, the economist, had a poet, like had a Jones for poetry. But then suppressed it to become an economist.
1: Be, well, that's a long story, but but um, it has to do with coming up through the depression and trying to take care of your family. Well, and, sure. And eventually becoming a, an economist. But before that, you know, joining the armed forces and you know these sort of things that you know are smart choices if you if you're basically doing everything for yourself. So uh, yeah, no. But then finally, <laughs> in, in, instead of having in, in his when he when he passed away, he had a, he's an organized person, so he had the thing all laid out for what was to happen, and he had these poems of his that he had written in when he was a younger person, and he wanted us to read them, and uh, yeah, that's the first time. Are they re- any good? Well. Yeah, they were good if they were good objectively, right? But what they were, especially the one I was slated to read, which which was the, it was the first time I'd ever seen this thing. Uh, it was handed to me, and as I'm reading it, I'm realizing how uh, ruthless it is, you know, and how 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 I mean, it, it was. I don't remember the language in it specifically. What I remember was. Um, it was not it didn 't make nice with death at all and and i 'm supposed to be reading this you know right after his death at a funeral he, Which he knew yeah. right so by the uh, way
0: stage like it really like planning out your own yes, funeral stage managing it that 's interesting well
1: it, it, to call it a funeral would would be a, a misnomer it was a sort of a reception after after uh the actual you know logistics of burial it was a, it was the reception part of it, but yes, he had it planned out. He he had things he wanted my father to read and say, and my, myself and my brother too. What my brother was handed was remarkably lighter in tone than mine. (laughs) He gave you you the heavy lift. (laughs) Yes, he did. I don't know if he was, you know, uh, who knows? There's no, there's no way to read into the significance of having been given that one. But anyway, yes. So that comes as a surprise. So, I, I don't know the, the, the sort of the concept of passing something along. Um, yeah. Whether it clearly
0: runs deep in your family generationally.
1: I guess so. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, I'm not, I'm not, uh, dismissive of it as a, as a, as a lineage, but I'm also sort of, uh, I want to, I want to, uh, make it a more modest thing in our family than maybe it, it appears to be since we're all doing it, you know? that it's just happened it's more of a coincidence maybe we could have all been masons or something <laughs>
0: <laughs> now what about uh what about the period of rebellion that you've referred to a couple of times was it in was it as intense as it uh sounds or like what happened
1: well you know my parents got a divorce um that'll do it you, and and that that is just the thing about all you know my problems are the are the problems of somebody who's had good luck you know and good fortune so to talk about it being like extremely hard and to be a cataclysm is it makes me feel like I should you know not call it that but it was at the time for me sure it was how old were you 12 I suppose so so uh you know no one you're a kid no one's telling you the truth about exactly why what whatever is happening is happening you're reading a lot making a lot of inferences and uh you not that you are deciding who to 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 pledge your loyalty to but it sort of happens that one parent or another may or may not antagonize you during that time and then you may you you you're a person uh uh put in an adversarial position maybe sure yeah so that happened and and uh it lasted throughout my teens i guess you know and it's like Hey, it could have happened in the, uh, whether or not they have it at a force. You know, this happens all the time. I hear.
0: <laughs> it's called, yeah, I mean, it's like well, hormones. I mean, those years are fraught no matter what. But I don't think that uh, your parents splitting up makes it any easier.
1: No, but I had, you know, I had a lot of friends in one way or another sort of having these things, having daddy issues or whatever. Um, and it was all different variations, right? Someone's dad was really sick. Someone's dad was Never there. Someone's dad uh, was there too much. Well, no, <laughs> not that. No, I think that that per- that person would have been the healthiest probably, but that that person didn't exist among my peer group. There was any. There was many iterations of it, and mine was just you know <laughs> my version of it. So um, uh, poetry was like you know, a great way to reconcile us. So I could give it that if this never turned into anything for me, that would have been helpful. I think as a sim, a symbol of repair. Yeah.
0: That's cool. So, I mean like, but, but like during those years it served as a way or no. it's like after the fact, no, no,
1: no. During those years, it was like, there was no communication, like, like no, no. Were you living with your mom? Yeah. So I was, I was with my mom most of the time during that time, uh, and gradually, you know, I, I just figured out, you know, what I, I guess, you know, I, I, figured out more of what I wanted, you know, uh, decided that I wanted to go to college and, uh, where'd you go? Oh, well, I started by, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't graduate with good grades. I hardly graduated, um, so I had to go to junior college, um, and, uh, which was, you know, it's a good thing, a really good thing for me. And, uh, why was, is that? Well, it was, it's like, okay, you, uh, you are told something over and over again, which is that education is going to, is going to liberate you. Hmm but there are people telling you this and you're going to high school and then that's, that's not your experience. Right. Um, and then for me, at least magically, when I went to college, it was true. So began to believe in it, you know,
0: like, what was it? Like, give me an experience that you had that made it feel so liberating.
1: I, I don't know. Maybe just like I had a teacher who was like, you know, if you don't want to come to any of these classes, you're fucking paying for it. So that's your problem, you know? And, uh, I'm not going to treat you like a kid. And it was like, Oh great. You know, I don't want to be treated like a kid. And, uh, let me try on some of the trappings of like adulthood. I mean, responsibility. I shouldn't really say adulthood at all, but, um, that paired with like, uh, somebody, uh, telling you, uh, about a specific, if you're in a history class, learning about something very specific, or if you're, uh, in a political science class and having to think about uh, the larger world in and it actually involves you you know it doesn't doesn't dismiss you because you're a child you know you don't have uh you're it's not for you yet in high school I believe you you're just talked to like a child uh even when you're talked to about history and politics and then magically you're a year older and it now it really does involve you so. these
0: lines for demarcate they're pretty they're pretty uh Silly, you know, like all of a sudden, like you're 18, you're, I mean, I guess we have to designate it somewhere, but
1: right. I agree with you on that. You, I mean, not that you have to, but that legally, that's what we do. But when I, when I, when I talk about education, I just mean that I think that, um, I just, there's a, there's a, there's a a major difference between educating a child and educating an adult in our country. and, And you can feel it, uh, When it happens, when it starts to happen.
0: I just read something. I read something in the paper just a few days ago about this, like private school. It's extremely expensive in like Santa Barbara County. Did you read this? No. (laughs) it's like all the kids like basically have to like chop wood and like light fires and cook their own meal. Like they're basically treated very much like adults Mm. and it's sort of like this really outside uh, of the box educational experience, but yet they graduate students who go on to, Ivy league schools at like a pretty astonishing rate. Like, so they do very well, but they're given an enormous amount of, um, agency and responsibility at a young age. sounds like you would have enjoyed that. Most people. No,
1: if you would have asked me to chop wood, that would have been, (laughs) that would have been a a mistake. Don't Uh, give this kid an ax. No, definitely not. I, yeah. So yeah, take away the ax that I already had. But, but, uh, uh, no, I mean, something a little less drastic would, uh, than, than asking for a level of self-sufficiency that by the way, many adults do not maintain now. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, not chopping my wood. I, I mean, maybe you are, and I built sh- this entire you place. You should be proud <laughs> of what you've achieved with your, you know, uh, with your axe. But, uh, uh, no, how about, um, uh, how about provoking, uh, how about, how about having a discussion uh, about something serious that leads to an impasse and not a nice resolution for, for a young person and just see how that goes. Because I don't think that, I mean, I could be incorrectly recalling those years, but, um, that didn't seem like it happened very much. There was a lot of answers, you know,
0: telling you how it is.
1: Maybe, you know, at being afraid to being afraid to, uh, complicate things to the point of of uh causing a crisis in your you know for you as a as a thinker
0: but that's not a bad thing
1: no i don't think so of course i don't there's an expert to contradict this i'm sure about what a child should be thinking but if you're already a kid who is exposing themselves at least on the level of ideas and images to the rest of the adult world the so-called nefarious part of it that actually once you become adult, you quite enjoy, you know, the, the sex and the intoxication. Why can't you also have the other part, which is the, you know, the stymieing and muddy part, uh, have,
0: existential you know. questions. And
1: well, not even just that, like how about, um, the, if, if we're going to talk about politics the night before an election, Oh, yeah,
0: we are recording this the night before the
1: election. Let's not talk about it too much, but the idea of something is something is abstract as as an individuals' rights versus a, the rights of a group or something like that. Uh,
0: that, that is like a, a central preoccupation of mine.
1: Okay, so that would be nice to. I mean, I don't know. Here is the problem, Brad. Is like it's it's really a revision of a revisionist idea of who I was. Like if some educator would have been like, you know, let's talk about this thing. And I, and, and there's some version of me that's not like, Oh fuck off. You know, uh, <laughs> I hope there is, you know, but I'm not too confident actually. Yeah. So anyway, but what, what I remember about childhood is about how much, how much it is impressed upon you that you are a child continuously yeah, and like- how, how that shifts when you, then you pass the magic line into adulthood.
0: And what did you uh, like? You know, you were you were you were not a good student. Were you getting into trouble otherwise?
1: Yeah, you know, but not any kind of trouble that's like that interesting. You know. Yeah. Um, I certainly knew people that were in a lot more trouble than I no, was. No, no felonies. No. <laughs> no, and and that's that happens. That has to do a lot with you know you know me being a a, a middle class white person. I'm pretty sure you know based on my experience so I'm lucky that in that way good out of you know something I don't want to I don't want to you know embarrass myself by giving the details but I'm pretty sure that that has something to do with it sure um, so yeah no felonies and 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 no criminality that is not the result of uh, uh, sort of honest r- rebellion or whatever. And then
0: what about culturally? Like as you're coming out of this like high school, you know, the high school years and transitioning into college and sort of, um, coming alive intellectually or whatever, like, was there, uh, were there certain artists or certain kinds of art that you were responding to most
1: intensely at that age? I mean, I, the, I don't, I don't want to seem more of a sophisticate than I was, but I, um, I mean the things, the things that I still like now. I think were starting to appear. Music was always a big deal, you know, um, and to the point where, uh, well, many people might have this feeling about themselves, but I think that I was an insufferable <laughs> uh, sort of a snob, you know, in 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 a, in those ways, you know.
0: But, and what were you into? You, well,
1: there was this sort of esoterica uh, uh, at the beginning of. of it's about like finding this thing that nobody knows about and, uh-huh. and then letting it represent you, which I think a lot of young men have done for uh, yeah, with centuries. music, 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 <laughs>
0: especially in, in this like 18 to 24 age window, like music is culture as a, uh, social currency. You know, I, I saw this band before they, you know, before anybody knew who they uh-huh. were, I've been to X amount of shows. I have, you know, all that kind of stuff really mattered at that age.
1: It mattered so much. It yeah. was this enormous thing. Uh, we, my friends and I were all, uh, it's funny because we're in the Bay area, but we're all focused on these like, uh, underground LA rappers and, uh, you were into hip hop. Is that, yeah, I mean, I I was into more than that, but I, I think that that really represent represented who we were as a group. And we were looking for these rappers that displayed this kind of virtuosity and like wild psychedelic imagination. That was the the counterpoint to some sort of mainstream uh, music. And we would sort of like who can you give me? Well, there's a, for anybody who wants a perfect example of what uh, uh, came out of LA during the late nineties, there's a group called log cabin who is a, now you can find everywhere on the internet, but before it was just a bunch of cassette tapes that somehow appeared and whoever had them was like this sort of, you know, I don't know, some sort of, uh, witch doctor, like, how did you get that tape? You know? And, uh, uh, it has this cassette tape. Yes. Yeah. It was it, like, it was literally <laughs> all the cliches about it are, uh, stand up. It's like a kid with like a boom box in the parking lot after school with this tape and he's playing his tape and you're like, the fuck is that? That's so great. And, uh, you he don't want to tell you the name and you have to like persuade him. And then finally, or somebody's more likely it was somebody's older brother and somebody's older brother's like, fine, just shut up. Here's a fucking tape. Yeah. And then you have the tape and you dub it for everybody. Now everybody has the tape, um, in your group, but nobody else knows who these people are. and, And that's what makes you more unique than somebody else. It's totally ridiculous. Right. But, um, so, so yeah, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of uh, groups and individual rappers or whatever that we were sort of uh, listening to and trying to trying to uh, I guess claim, uh, but at the same time uh, in my house the, you know my dad would have a Bob Dylan record on or something. I was going to ask you like what
0: as a poet what do you think of Bob Dylan winning the Nobel?
1: <laughs> uh, the best, um, the best piece of critique i've read about it comes from a, an old friend of mine from new york this my friend jerome i should shout him out um he was saying that the the one thing that concerns him about it is just um what reason would um the nobel committee have to give a writer the award ever again because the force of music is clearly it, it it's a, a larger thing this one might rile somebody up but worldwide you know these people mean so much right sure and they have at their disposal their instrument and the sonics of their voice and their writing combined and his point was that if this was if if we were going to go down this road you know why should a writer ever win it again why should a novelist win it again and he was making an, an argument for uh, recognizing writing specifically the constraints. That writers are under in awarding the best achievement in that, you know, saying here's somebody without the aid of uh, a beautiful singing voice and without the aid of a wonderful Fender, you know, Stratocaster. This is somebody doing it, you know, in this place on the page, and that's what we're that's what we're recognizing. I
0: see that. I mean, you know, because I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, so I'm happy that he. I mean, you're always happy when an artist that you like is recognized, but that is a persuasive argument. And, and I, I've also said in the past unrelated to the Nobel conversation, you know, music feels like the highest art, or at least it's the quickest to the vein. It's so powerful. Like you go to a concert, especially, and you're in uh, some sort of communion with the other people in the audience. And then the musician up on stage, and you're just like, my God, especially as somebody who sits in front of a laptop by yourself you know, like, it's a lot less sexy, you know what I'm saying? Like a,
1: as a, as a, as a uh, process of creation. Yeah. Uh,
0: and, and also, yeah. And also delivery. I mean, just the yeah. whole experience and it's just, uh, right. What, what a gift to be able to make music and sing and all that kind of stuff. Right.
1: I think, I, I mean, you should do a poll of writers to just find out how many of them would have rather become musicians. Well, or...
0: and look at actors. They do it all the time. Everybody, yeah. every, that's what I, that's why I say it's the highest art. It's like Everybody. No matter, even if they are an artist of some kind, and even if they're very successful, if you said to them, listen, I can make you a rock God or whatever, (laughs) most people would take that deal in a second.
1: I would take the deal. I would take the deal. It begs the question whether, why anybody, uh, I have an answer to this question, but why anybody would prefer the, the quieter thing? But the answer is implied there. Some You just you can't be listening to music all the time. Well, some people, I suppose, do. Uh...
0: M- music, I will say, well, you know, I mean, the really great songs stick to us, but there is something, there is a depth charge that I get from great literature that works on me in a much different way. And, you know, I, I guess I would argue that it's ultimately the most Powerful. You have to work the hardest for it. Like music's easy. Music washes over you. You turn on the stereo. It's a three minute experience. You know, Mm -hmm. like you have to sit down with a a book of poetry or a novel that is a participatory creative exercise, you know? And I guess, you know, some music really challenges us and we have to participate. You know, you always have to meet art halfway in some manner, Mm -hmm. but you know, with literature, I feel like if you, um, find yourself, up against a work that really resonates with you that the impact is maybe deeper and more lasting.
1: Well, I mean, it depends on who you ask with the last part of it. I certainly am on board with the idea that, that there are different physical processes in your body being engaged when you have one or the other thing. Um, and I do think there is something to, uh, there's two imaginations. There's the, the passive imagination and the active imagination. Which is not my idea. That's a that's a, a pretentious steal from like John Keats. But but it I believe it, um, and uh, so, the, but the question is to uh, what is going to impact you, uh, yeah. or what 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 leads to a more enlightened person? I couldn't tell you. I just happen to you know like both, and I think there's a context for both. And I would say, make me a, a wonderful musician tomorrow, and I'll stop the poetry.
0: Are you? But so you don't have any musical gift? No instruments. No. Never tried to pick up a guitar. No, I mean,
1: of course I tried, but you know, no. Can't sing. No. Well, uh, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. Yeah. God damn it.
0: Um, what about performing your work?
1: Well, the, the I, I don't know. It's 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 hard to even describe is a performance, you know, that doesn't feel like a performance. It feels like a recitation. Uh, but
0: I mean, do you get like, cause some, I, I've had poets on this show and I know I have friends who are poets who, you know, they get up there and they really have uh, a stage presence and a theatrical delivery. You know, like... <laughs> I
1: probably don't, yeah. you know, but, uh, uh I don't, I do not you know, I, I don't think you have to be, um, uh, the kind of virtuoso that can uh, uh, sing and 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 also read your your work, um, but I also don't think that everybody's work is well represented off the page, you know, just in just being heard. So whether I fall into that category or not, I just feel like it's okay, you know, for for some writers to not be as good as performers.
0: Well, it's funny that you say you know some work off the page doesn't work as well. I would argue, especially when we, you know, to circle back to the Nobel argument that a lot of Bob Dylan's work as a Nobel laureate now (laughs) sort of dies on the page. You know, you look at it, you're like, Oh, wow, this sounds a lot better when he's got a Fender Stratocaster and an accompanying band. And, you know, and, and it's like all of its profundity and everything is sort of relying upon that production. And that's not to denigrate it. It's just to say it's different, you know, and like, you know, you can take, um, I guess you could take maybe a, a more average piece of poetry and when you add these other elements, it elevates it. And, sure. and it's, and it is truly profound, but sure. without those other elements, it's not happening.
1: No, I don't think so. I think if you want to make the case for Bob Dylan, uh, you can, it's not, I remember when they announced it, um, that some people took a lot of offense to, uh, uh, For a number of reasons, one being what I, what, you know, my stolen insight from my friend, but, um, uh, the one it's like, there could have been so many others that you decided to give this to. So why did, why was Bob Dylan the, the musician and not somebody prior to Bob Dylan, like one of the great bluesmen or something, you know, and there doesn't seem to be an answer for that. Yeah. Um, a satisfying one. Well,
0: it also makes me think like, um, you know, the Nobel, I, I think the Nobel has made great efforts to sort of uh, spread the wealth in terms of geography and, and in terms of, rep, you know, writers representing a wide variety of nations. I mean, that was, this is the first American to win in 23 years. Right. Every, which yeah. feels good to me because, I mean, you know, there are writers working all over the world. I, we, I don't think we should have any dominion. Um, but if you start to think about, if the door is now swung wide open, and musicians are in the mix, um, you go back to hip-hop, you know, the music of your youth or whatever, <laughs> like, who do you think, like, who, who can you imagine might be a hip-hop Nobel laureate? Oh,
1: God, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like that genre to have this, to, to try to, to answer this question, it, it's impossible. Kanye? I, uh, yeah, definitely, Kanye. He should. It's like Obama would get his Peace Prize right after he was elected president. So Kanye in twenty twenty. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I just I don't think it's a fair converse, I don't think it's a fair uh, thing to ask uh, that genre to aspire to. Why? And why? It's the same. It, be, my answer would be the same for other genres. It's that. Um, uh, what it's doing it, it it's I, I guess we're going to talk about value um, f- it's greatest value it's hard to represent just by looking at language right and um, the thing about hip hop I'm not a I'm not exactly comfortable representing it it's not really my culture you know it's something that I'm a enough you know an enthusiast about but not an expert in any way and to imply an expertise would be in my in my case i think would be offensive because i just don't know what somebody who really does know hip-hop and and whatnot it it just it it doesn't make sense for me to to represent it with authority but what i will say you're a big fan you can speak
0: of it as a fan
1: i'll speak of it in this in these terms it is a utopian response to a dystopian Uh, stimulus and as a response to dystopia it is an effective tool for more than just entertainment but for self-esteem and joy you know and a sort of agency uh, that whether you like the lyrical content of it or not was super necessary right and it still does this internationally for people who are who have a dystopian you know s- semi dystopian or dystopian you know present, so what I want to say about hip-hop in in those terms is uh, whether it, it doesn't need a Nobel Prize, yeah because what it does is so so much more of greater value than that than selling for instance the the selling of Bob Dylan as a as a lyricist or whatever more than or as a poet I guess I should say because I think that was the conversation people were having whether we need to try to sell uh Eric B and uh, and Rakim as like poets or to try to sell um Kanye as as something more than uh than a uh, musician to me it's just not especially for hip hop it doesn't make sense to to enter into ter- seriously to enter into that territory Um, uh, but, uh, the, the, the other, the, the last thing about, about that genre in relationship to language, I think it, it has been said by, by many people in that genre that that is their poetry, you know, for those, for those kids who love it. I don't dispute that at all. Yeah. You know, so.
0: Absolutely. And you know, it's funny, I want to circle back because we sort of launched into uh you know different lines of conversation after we got you to college and you talked about like you know the rebellious years or whatever and this like lack of i
1: know i'm regretting even having it's such a it it is such a uh uh, it's funny it's like a a, an obsession it's a it's a a product of a self self self-absorption that's located in this time that i always over represent when i talk about myself i don't feel like you know, I should, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, here we are talking. Yeah, about it, The
0: adolescence. Though. We all, I think, we all sort of relate to our adolescence in that way. To well, a I degree. still
1: feel like one is the thing. Me too. So okay.
0: Yeah, but I just you know the 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 thought that I wanted to bring up is that you know you talked about how there was a lack of communication between you you and your dad in these adolescent years chronologically speaking, and that poetry was a way back in, and it, it's such a it's such a touching thing to think about because I think there is in pretty much every family, there's like some sort of, hopefully, uh, a lingua franca. I don't know what it would be, whether it's poetry or it's sports, like for many men, yeah. it's like sports. Like yeah. my dad and I can just like, we'll, we'll sit and hang out politics too. Um, even though we don't always agree slash rarely agree on a lot of stuff, but you know, to his credit and I think also to mine, like we, we always talk like the conversation doesn't end, but you have to have these things to talk about. And, uh, like, it's pretty cool and unique, I think, to have poetry
1: I think it's a it's a privilege, um, I, but uh, like you say, it would have been just as useful if it were just baseball or something like that. Just something. Something. I do um, But what I, what it really is more than even communication. It's a sort of sort of shorthand for forgiveness that goes two ways. Yeah. You know, even being able to look at the other person and say something, anything. Um, whether it's about something you're watching on TV or whether it's about, you know, something as high-minded as, as arts, you know, it's just, um, uh, it's at some point is purely gesture. Yeah,
0: that's true. Though. I mean, I like to believe that you and your dad having some sort of a high-minded conversation about art would maybe be a little <laughs> bit more beneficial than like a father and a son talking about like the real housewives of Orange County. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I should talk to my dad about that. Yeah. Um, no, I, I don't know. My dad knows so much more about it than I do. So that sometimes the conversation is mostly just me, uh, hearing him tell me about something that I don't really know about. Um, but that's good. Uh, especially, uh, for him. I think he, you know, he wanted to, uh, he always wanted to be a, uh, uh, an academic, and I think he he really, I think he loves the university as a as a more than a physical place, and the the idea that um, that I can I can enter the university, if you will, with him, uh, and in our ideas is an important thing for him, you know, as a father. Sure. Um. So as long as we're doing something like that, then we're, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll basically be on, on, on one of those lingua franca tracks. (laughs) Um, even if it's my dad telling me about poets who I don't particularly care for, you know, it's, it's still all to the good. Right.
0: Right. You're still on like familiar terrain. You can still go back and forth.
1: Right. Or, you know, so if you want, you know, when, and if you listen to this, I can make a suggestion that we can, we can talk about other things too. Yeah. <laughs> Real housewives, dad, yeah, Come on. or anything else really. <laughs> I mean, aren't you sick of poetry?
0: Um, and so, yeah. So before I let you go, like what, because we all know like poetry, uh, it's not, it's a peripheral art in terms of the American cultural sphere, you know, it's way on the outside and perhaps that's as it should be, you know, maybe back in a different age, poetry was closer to the middle. Um, there are convincing arguments, arguments that have been made, um, that I've read and heard that like, you know, maybe people who make literature should be a little bit away from the middle of the action. Um, but what is its purpose? Like, how do you conceive of its purpose? Like to, to spend all the time that you have to spend doing the work, all the reading that you have to do is included in that. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, what is it that Makes it make sense for you, and what function do you think it's performing mm-hmm. in our culture?
1: This is going to be an individual answer for most people. That that can be in contradiction and still be the right answer, probably. But I mean, for me, it is a pleasure and also a, 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 a just a, a functioning, you know, technique to sort of uh, to just to to live a more healthy life. I think uh, to it's not what i'm what i'm doing is at least not anymore that sort of epiphanic kind of writing it's more of a daily writing and uh i'm glad that it is now it's, it's a more modest writing and it for me is a a healthier kind of writing um i should say a, a healthier sort of engagement and uh so for me personally it's just about a sort of um a pleasant way to pass the time, and also uh, a way of leaving an, the artifacts of, of that time, and hopefully a pleasure for somebody else. And I really, it would be a lie if 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 I said that if no one read it, it, it would it would mean just as much. Um, but I don't th- I don't think poetry. It, that at least as far as what I'm doing with it, has a responsibility. Um, but for many people, it does have a civic responsibility and a humanizing responsibility. Um, but I, I think we are in such a... Uh, it, our pluralism is really here and that we can... You know, history is over. We do not have to participate in movements anymore uh, because of, you know, whatever genius is currently operating... We can do any different kind of writing we want. It's a great thing in some ways, but I think it also contributes to the the decentralization of it from life uh, from from civic life or from imp- the level of importance we maybe some of us wish it held. I don't. Um, but I do know that for some people it's essential uh, in in a bigger way than it is for me. For me, it is essential like as in like I want to do this every day.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's like that's what I was going to say. It's like writing and making literature as a mode of living strikes me as very healthy, or like at (laughs) least healthier than most modes. (laughs) You could do worse, but I think there are also to. Yeah, you could be a musician. Yeah, (laughs) see, yeah, as much as much of a god as you are, it's a very unhealthy lifestyle (laughs) on that bus with all those women. Yeah. Um, So, but I mean, you know, in terms of it being a. Uh, a good way to live, an enriching way to live your life, to be making poetry. Uh, I also know that there are people, and I'm, I think I'm becoming more of one, or I want to become more of one, uh, for a couple of reasons, like, a, hey, I like poetry. And so I think as a reader of poetry, like, I think there are people out there who it's part of how they process life. And it's a very regular thing. You know, people who are fans of poetry as readers, you know, go to it, in the way that I imagine, maybe certain people go to like the holy texts, Sure. you know, for instructions on how to live or at least like, you know, something stars to steer by. And, uh, the other thing that I like as a reader, and this might speak more to uh, my weaknesses as a reader or my attention span is that you can read a poetry collection fairly quickly. It's nice. You can be like, "Oh, I just read a book in a day," or, you know. <laughs> That's a good feeling. I like, for, you know, I love that feeling of like stacking up books, this this feeling of ingestion, you know, of good stuff.
1: Right? I like I like the smallness of it now. I mean, before I I was obsessed with this idea that it needs to be enormous, you know, and that it needed to uh be sublime. Uh which it can be, but and, and I think people who go to it like they go to you know, proverbs or something, uh, are asking for it, for that. And I think they're getting it. Um, I'm not asking for, uh, that from, from it right now. Um, uh, I have, you know, my son is, is like two and he's like, non, he doesn't stop moving until he's asleep. And, uh, if I want to do any writing and reading right now, it's just a great coincidence to sort of be reading, Smaller poems and writing smaller ones now. Yeah, um, that he is he is at the age that he is at, so that you can read a short classical Japanese poem and look up, and he hasn't run into the street. You know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> always nice, right? Or, and here's the other great thing. I, I don't. I haven't talked enough about that literature, but the. Uh, the short, the short form poem, especially as it comes out of uh, ancient China and classical Japanese literature, is a perfect complement to the sort of daily life that I am living and many other people are, which deals with really uh, normal everyday things in a way that is, um, uh, I guess it. It, it makes out of tedium, it makes significance, which is important for me, I think.
0: I love poetry like that. Right. Because, well, so, so, I mean, th- too often I find that poetry can reach for the sublime in a way that, uh, you know, maybe not grandiose is the right word, but it, it, uh, it makes it less accessible. I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? It, it puts you at a remove as a reader. Whereas...
1: Well, yeah, it's huge, right? And uh, Transcendence is not like, it's like a it's like a major event right how how can you be tra- having those events daily as a poet uh, so i should I, I a young poet i believe his name uh, this is this conversation will be like a wiki page that has a lot of like parentheses where someone needs to go back and fix this. i believe the the poet is his name is Ricky Loranidis mentioned somewhere that it's unsustainable uh, ultimately to write poetry and i agree with him if it potentially is only the epiphanic uh poetry um the process of of uh just absorbing daily time and making significance out of it as a as an act continuous through your life is a big sublime thing but on the daily basis it is it it is a tedious thing yeah and if you're like me uh, a sort of nihilistic person by nature it is important to rescue Uh, where you can some of these things to help process the sort of emptiness behind all of it you know not to sound dark because i uh, i'm not that kind of nihilist (laughs) what kind of nihilist are you i would say a, a happy nihilist if that's if there is one my
0: friend milo martin who's a poet uh you know here in l.a he uh He's got this whole thing about the utopian nihilist, you know.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't call myself a utopian, though. That's a dangerous thing. I would say that there is a there is an, uh, negating nihilism and an, an affirming nihilism that leads through certain. I don't want to get too into it because it will make me sound like I actually know what I'm talking about when I don't. <laughs> but there's a. Sp- I'm ready to follow you okay. right off this cliff. Well, okay, we'll go to the Kyoto School of uh, Philosophers who i haven't read that much of but one of their one of this particular philosopher's ideas is that you begin with this meaninglessness and basically you have two choices you have to either say it's it's not worth it and it's not good or you're gonna affirm it you're gonna start with it being meaningless and say okay yes i'll say yes to it um and to me that's Th- that's the only healthy way out of it. And for, it's that's like everything
0: as, is sacred or nothing is, kind of right. It, well,
1: even even if it's not sacred, um, even if it's meaningless, that you would start by affirming it that as an attitude, and it, like basically the, to to paraphrase and maybe incorrectly <laughs> sum up a whole bunch of writing that I haven't read. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful is to say. Uh, What you begin with is an attitude before you have any understanding of it. And maybe you ultimately end with an attitude too. You don't necessarily arrive anywhere but saying yes, right? Um, And not to make too big a leap, but it's some of the, the, the writing that seems like it's meaningless or small offers you that same scenario, which is like, this is what life feels like. Uh, it may be a joke, or it may be sublime, and maybe you won't ever know, but here's the art that sort of mimics it, which is sort of what I like to read and be into.
0: Yeah, yeah, like people's personal, yeah, I, art that feels real. Like, or, or, like that depict, <laughs> eh, I don't know, I mean, that's a, that might be a simplistic way of saying it, but it it's art that makes me... I don't know. It feels lived in somehow. I can't make too many definitive rules about this because I like so many different kinds. I'm thinking of books, you know?
1: Right. Well, again, this is like, this is something that I want to read and I don't, I don't expect anybody else to naturally want to, but, um, there's the book that, that, uh, confirms something. And there's a book that Replaces it for you, like changes your thinking, and both of them are ne- necessary for you as a reader. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but the problem with being alive is, you know, too many swings in in either direction is really un- destabilizing, right? So it's okay to read books that that cause a tumult, but it wouldn't be acceptable if reality did too much of that. Yeah, and there's a kind of um, there's a kind of book that can act as a corrective, a kind of, I should say, a kind of writing that can act as a corrective to that sort of destabilizing, uh, 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 just destabilizing input that is your life, you know. And hopefully, when I say healthy, that's what I mean, more of a uh, 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 an antidote to that sort of uh, frightening kind of thing. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Brad, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, and I wish you the best of luck on whatever's next, and and best of luck with fatherhood.
1: Oh, well, yeah, Um, I'll need it.
0: (laughs) Hi, guys. There you go. If you like this podcast and you want to support it, there are multiple ways you can do that. You can go to Patreon. That's a new option. You can go to patreon.com slash pod and uh, pledge a monthly donation to support the show. You can also sign up for a premium subscription uh, and get access to the full archives of the show. There's all sorts of things you can do, but Patreon's a good way to support the show. If you don't have the money to do that, you can always go to iTunes and write a review of the podcast. That helps other people find the show, so uh, consider that an option as well. That was uh, Adam Soldovsky. His poetry collection is called Memory Foam. It's available now from Disorder Press. And uh, you can track Adam down online on Twitter. His handle there is at Adam Soldovsky, And uh, what else? I'm trying to think. Memory foam. Buy the collection for the poetry fan in your life. It's a great gift. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com don't forget uh, about the app the other people app the other people with brad listy app it's a free app it's free get it wherever you get your apps it's the best way to listen to this program to keep track of this program you just get the app it's free you download it to your device once you have the app the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge the most recent 50 for free and then if you want to go deeper if you want access to all 400 and some odd episodes. You just get a a premium subscription for as little as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you everything. Like 440-something episodes available at your fingertips anywhere you go. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. It's very user-friendly. So get the app. The app itself is free. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. So uh yeah, ephedrine cold meds, you know, trying to uh knock this cold out. I've given myself this is my second day in a row of rest. I'm trying to get better about letting myself rest, not getting myself uh too uh obnoxious in terms of resistance. You know, like I've still worked, but I haven't been exercising. So I just let my body take it easy. My body's telling me that I need to take it easy. My body fell out of balance. Let's give it a moment to rebalance. But I feel like after 2 days with a cold, I think on day 3 I might have to do something. At some point in every illness, what I find is that you get, you know, you get to a certain level and then you got to break through. You got to push. Will that happen tomorrow? I don't know. Hang on a second. Getting summoned. Please remember that, uh, (laughs) sorry, I was just checking Twitter. Please remember that Patricia Highsmith had pet snails. And that uh, Sigmund Freud had a professional barber come and trim his beard every morning. Also, did you know that Sigmund Freud's wife uh, put his toothpaste on his toothbrush for him every day? I find these little facts interesting. That's all for now. Thanks to uh, Adam Soldovsky for uh, coming over here and doing the show. Be sure to get his collection. It's called Memory Foam. Available now from Disorder Press. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. I appreciate it. I'll be back next week with another episode, another conversation with another writer. Until then, I hope you uh, are having a happy holiday. Okay? Or a happy, just trying to get through this weird, dark period in our history without going too crazy. So fucking bleak. Let's hope the Electoral College does its job. Just do your job. Where are some faithless electors? Where are some people of courage? We need 37 of them to not vote for this, uh, Yahoo. Anyway, I digress. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.